0: Hello. Thanks for listening to this Dharma podcast. I hope you consider that in accordance with the Buddhist tradition, all of my work as a teacher is offered without charge and supported entirely by donations only. If you'd like to support this work, you'll find a PayPal button on dharmapunksnyc.com. Yeah, so today, Tuesday evening in New York City, and we're going to be talking about addiction and uh, addictive behaviors. And, uh, of course, a very important topic from a Buddhist perspective, Second Noble Truth, the nature of addictive, compulsive behaviors, some of the theories of addictive behaviors, three different perspectives, two contemporary, one core Buddhist, which overlaps actually with another, a third contemporary theory, of addiction. And we'll be talking about uh, ways that these models have treatment implications. And then in the meditation, we'll be practicing some of the tools. And then at the end, hopefully you'll have some questions. And that's basically the way the whole shebang goes. So let's jump in, shall we? For the first theory of addiction, I'd like to start with a contemporary model, which is the incentive, sensitization. Sensitization is a word I've never pronounced with any degree of confidence. There's just some words that you don't really say out loud. You read them but you don't really say them out loud. And when you finally do have to say them out loud, you realize you just have no confidence with it. So incentive, sensitization model of addiction. That's quite a mouthful. And uh, it's a theory that is born of contemporary um, neural perspectives, as we'll see uh and rather than do any deep dive i'm going to give you the very broad strokes because uh well for a number of reasons one while i understand this theory's um allure um there are significant problems with it and there's also challenges in addressing therapies or recovery from this perspective. So the basic idea is that there are some people who have what are called hypersensitive mesolimbic reward systems. What the hell does that mean? Well, hypersensitive mesolimbic DA, dopamine reward systems is uh, essentially means that Some people, when they consume a substance or engage in a behavior that activates the dopamine uh, system of their brain, ventral tegmental, they get a, uh, a real jolt of reward, more than most people. So they get a sense of uplift or excitation or pleasure that is well beyond the norm. And this exaggerated reward encourages repeated use of a substance, whether it's uh, opiates or uh, speed or... Uh, Even other behaviors such as shopping, gambling, etc. So, or food, food activates the dopamine reward system. So, some people receive an exaggerated reward. And then the second stage is the repeated use, again and again, the chronic use or engagement of this reward system because it feels so good leads to eventually the native your dopamine reward system even though it has a hypersensitive response at first eventually it stops low it starts lowering the reward and so people need more and more substances or need to gamble or shop or eat more and more to make up for the fact that now their reward system in their brain is producing less and less dopamine. In other words, they've become habituated or desensitized. So it's kind of ironic that what starts out as overly sensitized leads to eventually a desensitized reward system. And now this is where addiction becomes chronic because an impaired reward system, the lowering of the dopamine reward, Leads to has been shown to lead to anhedonia, which is uh, essentially a feeling of complete lack of motivation, joy, in, engagement, pleasure, and so forth. And so now people are not so much taking drugs because they really experience a real heightened pleasure, they're now taking drugs or behaviors just to feel a normal amount of reward and motivation for and it allows them to reduce the chronic negative emotional states that have resulted so let's say restate that because i might have lost some of you so the basic idea is that some people get an uh, exaggerated pleasure due to a hyperactive Uh, dopamine system, that encourages them to use substances that give them these exaggerated rewards. But the more they use the substances, the more the reward system actually stops being triggered, becomes impaired. And now our native dopamine uh, reward system in our brain doesn't even work. And we need to take substances just to feel or have dopamine present. That's a very simplified version. I'm sure that, uh, you know, Beringer, I believe it was, and others who came up with the theory would want to point out a million different things, but that's, we're just giving an overview. So um, one of the implications of this theory would obviously be that if you could regulate people's reward systems uh, at first, by discouraging chronic use by downregulating their dopamine with some kind of atypical antipsychotic, I suppose, or once they become addicted, you want to give them something that would upregulate and keep their dopamine reward system going like a Wellbutrin, uh, that theoretically this theory implies a uh, that a uh, psychopharmacological solution should work uh, in almost all cases. Um, The problem is that, one, that doesn't work, and that, two, studies show chronic uh, hypoactivation in many addicts, not hyper. So many addicts don't start out with Uh, reward systems that give them this exaggerated reward. Many people start out with dopamine systems that don't give them hardly any or normal amounts of rewards. It also doesn't explain why certain individuals um, uh, relapse. Um, It doesn't, uh, especially those who relapse when they're experiencing positive emotional states. It struggles to explain why, in any way, group support, like Buddhist recovery, twelve step recovery, recovery in the support of spiritual um, uh, support systems, even why people can thrive in uh, uh, inpatient uh, you know rehab. Um, From the incentive incentive sensitization model, it really points to this idea that um, some people simply are born with it, and it has absolutely no way of explaining why uh, the role that uh, our uh, early childhood experiences uh, play in addiction. And as we'll see, that's probably the most important issue to take into consideration. So I don't really give this theory much stock, although it does have a lot of (laughs) followers in those who are looking for uh, pharmacological approaches to treating addiction. So needed to mention it. Uh, The second approach is what's called stress management. And the oldest version of this theory is the Buddhist model of craving, which is the Paticca Samapada. It's 2,500 years old, and it's, um, it is uh, at the very core of the Buddha's theory of um, craving. So the idea in the Paticca Samapada is that when we make contact with unpleasant stimulus, we experience what the Buddha called Vedana Dukkha, which is stress, unpleasant sensations. And that a natural human response to experiencing Dukkha or discomfort, unpleasant sensations in the body is to crave pleasurable sensations. Well, this sounds pretty obvious and easy to follow. And that creates what today we would call a hedonic response, essentially just craving, seeking pleasure. And so we consume or cling to, in Buddhist language, substances and behaviors that create pleasurable sensations to mask the stress that has arisen due to contact with unpleasant situations in our life. So... Again, the basic idea is that we experience difficult situations, interpersonal events, uh, uh, frightening scenarios, or all anything that triggers stress will then uh, activate a, a desire to experience the opposite of stress, which would be sukha or pleasure. And so we then, it initiates a craving response where we seek out to consume substances. Uh, in the early Buddhist model, the way out, the therapy to treat craving was um, very clearly explained. The idea is that craving is broken by mindfully observing the arising and passing of stress or uncomfortable feelings without reacting. So the addict or the person in recovery would be trained to develop internal awareness of the stressful responses that happen in their day-to-day life. For example, when somebody gives them a nasty look or when they're in a job interview or when they have to have a difficult conversation and they would become cognizant of their internal experience And instead of acting at the behalf of the stress, trying to get rid of it by craving things that create pleasure, like drugs, alcohol, food, uh, shopping, et cetera, the addict would be trained to, or the person in recovery would be trained to develop internal awareness and in that internal awareness would learn to, rather than resist stress, would actually learn to develop in a way to be with stress and not need to get rid of it. That is the way out, essentially. What the the buddha and the dark in the uh, dhamma not the dhamma pot it was in actually the abhidhamma i'm so sorry the abhidhamma posited that the way out of the stress response was to break the link right at negative feelings to pay attention to feelings but don't act on them now This obviously is why there's such an emphasis on mindfulness and Vipassana in so much uh, 12-step, not 12-step, excuse me, Buddhist recovery, and in contemporary recovery circles. It doesn't explain why some individuals are more prone to addiction than others, because the Buddha's Paticca Samavada applied to everyone. It was a universal statement that... When we the un uh, the normal, as he said, run-of-the-mill people, when they experience experience suffering, they seek pleasure. So that's a global statement, and it doesn't explain why some of us wind up as uh, addicts and alcoholics. I'm in my 25th year of recovery. Uh, so why m- me versus someone else who grew up in the same, in you know, who I knew didn't become an addict. I mean, the Buddhist theory is a universal one. So it doesn't give us insight as to why some people constantly are in search of uh, pleasurable sensations or repeating chronic Uh, compulsive behaviors with alcohol or drugs or shopping and why some of us other don't. It also struggles to explain why group support works. While in the Dharma, the Buddha emphasized again and again and again, how important groups are to recovery. And we see that, that people do recover from addictions with far greater efficacy in some in, when they are supported by a group of other people who are working on the same issues, yet there's absolutely no explanation of this in that fear theor- in the Buddha's theory. Um, so there's significant gaps and holes, and again, finally, there's no explanation about why certain people's childhoods would make them more prone to subsequent adult addictive behaviors versus other people. So the Buddhist theory, while fascinating, also has some significant drawbacks. Now, finally, the third theory is the attachment theory. And this is a theory that I find to be the most relevant, not only to my work in counseling, but also to Contemporary clinical studies on addiction. The idea is that we're all born with an innate psychobiological system that motivates us to seek proximity to caregivers for security, first of all, uh, that we, you know, it makes sense in the course of evolution that we had uh, that our entire nervous system and structure of our brain and reward system, and everything pushed us to connect and bond with people who could provide us with safety and food and, you know, care during the first, you know, 15, 16 years of our life where we were very vulnerable, especially in childhood. Um, And also because our nervous systems limbically co-regulate when we are anxious or nervous and we connect with another human being due to the uh, regions of the brain that lock us in with other people's nervous systems. We can be downregulated from stress into uh, a state of calmness simply by being close to someone, making eye contact, hearing a soft voice, neurocepting unconsciously, positive uh, physiological gestures, touch, and so forth. So we also seek proximity, not just for safety and nourishment and, uh, and uh, care when we're sick, but we also seek it just to maintain our nervous systems in a homeostatic state. Um, if in infancy, the child regularly receives proximity and safety and care, uh, Then they will be confident to explore the world, they won't wind up in their mobilization states of fight flight, they'll expect the best of others, they'll be able to relax and bond easily. And as we'll see, studies show these individuals will not grow up to experience addiction in their adult life. On the other hand, if we had unreliable attention then our attachment systems remain either overly activated if we are anxious, or we'll switch off our attachment systems altogether if we're avoidant. And either way, we will stop seeking, or will not, we'll either stop seeking attachment with caregivers if we're avoidant or if we're anxious we'll constantly be in a state of mobilization worried that we're about to be abandoned or disappointed and of and children who are abused will wind up actually scared of their attachment figures and they will be prone to dissociation One of the keys of all, of the 50% or 45% that wind up is uh, with insecure attachment, uh, that they fail to integrate painful emotions into their self. Because they don't have a secure base to go to for when they feel frightened or angry or disappointed or frustrated, they need to either repress or or regulate on their own, auto-regulate their emotions when their emotions are negative. So um, what this points out to, though, is that the more damaged our attachment is in earlier childhood, the likelier our re- that we will become dependent on substances. And this has actually been borne out by numerous studies. Been in a number, like the meta-analysis of, what was it, longitudinal associations between substance use and attachment or something like that, showed that the less secure the attachment, the more likely the chronic use of substances and compulsive behaviors. In the ACE study, which is the Adverse Childhood Experiences Studies, of 17,000 people showed that 80% of drug and alcohol dependence is attributable to adverse childhood relational experiences. So what we see from this is in early childhood experience, and this is even before our memories are formed, that adverse bo- or uh, attachment wounds, where we don't bond very well with our caregivers, sets us up f- with nervous systems that are either chronically overactivated or underactivated, and that there is also a reliance on substances to regulate our affects, because we don't trust other people to do it for us. And so this theory that uh, attachment wounds is the underpinning of addiction, uh, explains a number of things, why certain individuals are more prone to addiction subsequently than others. It also explains why almost all individuals fare better when they recover in groups than when they try to go it alone. It also explains why addicts invariably describe their first drink or their first drug as getting the best hug they ever got in their life. Why they feel the sense of finally being at home and relaxed when they took drugs because they're getting an uh, an experience of being downregulated and soothed that they didn't get reliably in their family system. Uh, Over-reliance on substances leads to increasing self-harm, lowered self-esteem, greater isolation, life becomes smaller. These are all the hallmarks of addiction, and they're also all the hallmarks of early attachment wounds as well. So the very most important then obvious course of action, if we accept that, that it's not biology that's the principal role in addiction, that it's actually uh, nurture, not nature, that it's actually early experiences that fundamentally uh, influential is to end addiction. We have to replace the unhealthy attachments that people still gravitate to in their adult life through repetition compulsion with healthy alternatives. Um, Until somebody who's any addictive compulsive nature winds up with secure attachments in their adult life, they will still be prone to relapse. And this explains why certain people can still relapse deep into their recovery, especially if they are surrounded by, uh, uh, you know, relationships that repeat the early interpersonal dynamics of childhood. So Buddhist recovery, 12-step groups, other spiritual groups uh, foster disclosure with others. And some... uh, For example, 12-step groups emphasize reliance on a higher power. God, in this case, is an attachment figure. When you hear people in recovery talk about God, they talk about a God who's always available, always forgiving, not scary, accepting. So in essence, what they're doing is creating a new sense of a attachment figure that compensates for the damaged attachments of childhood. When we have a secure base in our life, a felt sense that there's someone there or people there that care about us, or at least another entity, it allows us to begin to process our emotions in a way that doesn't require denial, or repression, or compartmentalization. It, um, it allows us also to find safe connections where uh, we can begin to disclose our affects, and through disclosing, co-regulate our emotional states. So the key in this theory, is to interject or create a secure base where we previously didn't have one, a felt sense that we there's a place we can go that's safe where we can um, uh, process our painful experiences with others now. The key to these, what creates a secure base, has been defined by various attachment theorists as having four principal qualities, which is one, we need to find people that makes us, make us feel safe, that are attentive and emotionally understanding. So that's, the first is proximity and security. The second one is empathy. The third is people who are soothing so that when we are stressed, disappointed, frustrated, lonely, angry, when we've gone through a breakup, when we've gotten uh, fired or uh, 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 let go from a job, um, we'll have a place where people can soothe our nervous systems. And the most important in many ways is expressed delight. Expressed Delight is, in childhood, the parent that looks absolutely uh, happy and profoundly uplifted to see the child. Unfortunately, due to the stresses that parents are put under in our culture, where they're no longer supported by others, for the bulk of human history, children were not raised by just their biological parents. They were raised in groups. So the stress of raising the child wasn't just on two adults or one adult. It was on a whole, essentially a clan of nomads that would travel together and would t- look after each other's children. Today, all of the stresses of you know, uh, paying the rent getting food on the table, paying medical bills, schools and all that are placed on just two people or one person. And that's enormously stressful. And so the idea is that this very essential attachment need of someone who expresses delight, who looks overjoyed when they see us, falls by the wayside, as most parents just opt for instrumental Needs And so many children grow up with this felt sense that there's nothing special or lovable or delightful about them. And then that makes us increasingly prone to addictive and compulsive behaviors. So one way we can, of course, address this is through therapy. The therapist as a secure base is, uh, you know, or the corrective emotional experience has been uh, one that has been central to the therapeutic endeavor, the therapeutic modalities since the 1960s, Carl Rogers and so forth. Uh, The idea is that the therapist knows how to create a secure base for the client. And the therapist produces these core attachment needs of safety, understanding, soothing, and delights in the client's uh, progress, reaching developmental milestones, and all that. The problem is that unless you are rich beyond anyone's imagination, you are going to be lucky to spend one hour a week in therapy, maybe two if you're doing really, you have a lot of funding. And that leaves many, 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 many hours of the week where you're not with that secure base. And so introjecting a secure base could take 10 years, 15 years if you're really lucky. So to make up for this deficit, uh, Brown and Elliot and others developed the ideal parent meditation, which is the idea that we address these early attachment wounds, if we have addictive compulsive or disorganized attachment um, or any other uh, interpersonal uh, disorders, we would visualize figures that embody the secure base attributes the somebody who cares about us is responsive is available is emotionally mirroring expresses delight and so forth so in their protocol what they do is they have us visualize ourselves as in uh, imagine we've taken a time travel back to childhood and we try to remember what it was like being a, a very young child, feeling lonely, disconnected, poorly attended to. And then we would visualize who would be the perfect parents. And we would just visualize that interaction, somebody looking at us with this reparative gestures and attention and caring that would over time make up or this lack of a secure base, this lack of a felt sense that there's people that care about us and safe places to go to process our emotions. Now, for me, the there's another Buddhist model that works just as well in the Buddha's Buddhist landscape. There are the Brahma Vahars, which are the divine attributes. Uh, the first being metta or unconditional friendliness welcoming, uh non-judgmental. Uh the second is Karuna, which is compassion and care for suffering. Mudita is appreciative joy and uh oh, just welcoming uh people's well-being and our own well-being. And before the fourth is Upeka, staying balanced and non-reactive and present. All of the brahma Viharas, in many ways are so similar to the core attachment needs that we can simply do a brahma Vihara practice for ourselves as well if we don't want to do the ideal parent figure meditation. So in keeping with the fact that this is a uh, a, both a Buddhist uh, meeting, but also a meeting where I discuss core uh, therapeutic insights, I'm going to now lead a meditation where we do both. A little bit of the ideal parent and a little bit of the Brahma Viharas for ourselves. So that's my spiel tonight on various views of Uh, theories of addiction and recovery. I hope you found something uh, interesting or worthwhile. And now, as you find a comfortable seat, um, just also reminding you that if you would like to support the work of your friendly uh, Buddhist pastor in Brooklyn, New York, Williamsburg, Uh, If you'd like to keep me going, if you have resources available, of course, uh, the Venmo is Dharma Punks with an X NYC or the PayPal is just on the Dharma Punks NYC website. And with that, find a really comfortable seated position And closing our eyes. In my case, taking off my glasses and. Just reeling back our attention into the body. Like you're fishing and you're reeling back in, I guess they call it the tackle, reeling it back in from the water reeling back in your attention from the world around you back into your body just feel it your awareness enter as it were your head and then feel into the eyes the muscles around the eyes the micro muscles and just Using your mind's ability to soften or relax muscles in the body, just encourage those micro-muscles micro to relax, as well as the muscles in your forehead if you feel there's any tightness or uh, furrowing of the brow there, and then bringing the awareness down to the mouth, trying to keep the mouth flat, relaxed and wide, the corners of the mouth very spread apart uh, so that there's nothing pinched or tight at all. If the slightest uh, Mona Lisa type smile is available, that's always internally soothing of the ventral vagal areas of the body, but don't force a smile if it's not available. And then releasing any clenching in the jaw as well, bringing awareness down to the throat, And just see if anything needs to be softened there. Bringing awareness to the shoulders, if you like, lift them up, rotate them back and drop to open up the chest. Bringing awareness to the abdominal musculature, the belly. Just expand the belly out so that it's bloated and then release the abdomen so that there's a sense of softness, pliancy. A soft belly is so soothing, engages the vagal nerve. And if you can continue to breathe into the belly, meaning, see if you can almost feel like you're bringing the breath into the body by expanding the belly, and then you're releasing the be- the breath is being expelled by the belly, then collapsing, relaxing, slightly contracting. And then just continue down the body, unclenching and then releasing the buttocks, clenching and releasing the thighs, clenching and releasing the calves, clenching the toes and the foot and then releasing, clenching the palms of the hands into fists and then releasing. And the reason we clench and relax is that interestingly, muscles carry action potential, readiness in them and if we want to fully relax muscles in the body, clenching and releasing actually discharges a good deal of the action potential or the action readiness in the muscles. And it's been shown that skin balance as well settles. And then just bring awareness to either your breath, becoming aware of whether you're breathing in, short or long, and whether you're breathing out, short or long breaths. The longer the exhalations, the more soothing, the shorter the inhalations, the more Energizing. So you could think of your meditation as being steered by the breath, if you like. Or you could steer the meditation by pulling your awareness to sensations that are increasingly soothing sounds in your environment that are steady, hums or pleasant. You could recite a pleasant phrase. I love you, keep going. I love you, keep going you could hold in mind a pleasant image of a place where you feel safe. Or you could find a pleasant sensation in the body. Perhaps sometimes I feel it in my calves or the palms of my hands. And then with each inhalation, breathe into... That pleasant area, and with each exhalation, see if you could slightly spread the ease, suffusing it through the body. And so we'll sit in silence for a little while, just practicing doing nothing, going nowhere, taking care of simply our own well being coming to a complete stop in life, bringing attention to our internal experience, landing in our life, appreciating the very body and sensations that keep us alive. And every time your mind wanders away, which is inevitable for most of us, That's in no way of failure, that's just an opportunity to practice bringing your awareness back again and again and again to something that's pleasant, soothing, steady, reliable. And just any practice where you keep bringing your awareness back. Developing concentration and focus and attention is so beneficial, not just for down-regulating the fight-flight regions of the midbrain, but just also to develop skills that will be of great benefit throughout our life. at this point, we're going to put into practice the little bit of the ideal parent protocol. So um, for this, I'd like you to imagine that you could step into some kind of a time machine and that in this time machine, it could... Whiz you back to one of the earliest times in childhood or any period uh, before adulthood where you felt most disconnected, isolated, a time when you are an image. Of a situation where you would have felt uh, the least supported by others, if no doesn't you don't have to know exactly what age this image would correspond to, but just see if you can set yourself in a situation based on some memory or some sense of what or an image that would be representative of a time where you felt alone and just placing yourself in this scenario see if you can visualize what the room might look like maybe you were in a room or maybe you were outdoors or maybe you were uh, in a kitchen, but in this uh, setting That is associated with being alone. I'd now invite you to see if you could create in your mind an image of who would have been an ideal adult figure during this this period of your life. Who would have been ideal for soothing a figure who would have been. Caring, available. And I'd like you to construct this image not based on anyone, even if you felt that one of your caregivers was available or <clears throat> there was an aunt or an uncle or a grandparent or a, a, a teacher. see if you could create from your own resources of imagination, creativity, if you could generate an image of someone available, soothing, understanding, delighting in your presence. Now for some of us, creating an image will be difficult for some because just creating images in our minds are difficult per se, or for some they'll just will feel blocked because such an idea of such a figure is so foreign. So if that's the case, just see if you could cultivate what it would feel like having the presence of such a person in your life. See if you could conjure that feeling. For some, it might be placing a hand on our heart center. Just the sense that there was someone now there who cared about us, who enjoys being with us, who doesn't judge, For some of us to create an ideal figure, we might need to borrow images from people in the world that we associate with care and kindness. And that's okay, but see if you can still create an internal resource based on your own imagination. And now in slight contrast with this practice, we're going to do a variation using the Brahma-viharas. So we're gonna be using Buddhist phrases and what I'd like you to do is change the image so now that you'll see an image of yourself in your mind either yourself as a child during this early period, or yourself as from a more recent time, a time where you were struggling, feeling poorly supported, feeling alone, not taken care of. The time could be in the past or the present. And just holding an image of yourself. If you can't visualize yourself, you could even look at and hold an image before you when you do this practice, hopefully, again. And as you visualize your self representation, as it would be called, we're going to first use, we'll use the first three Brahma-viharas, phrases. So as you visualize your image, just softly repeat, you are welcome, may you be happy, may you be peaceful, May you live with ease. May you be happy. May you be peaceful. May you live with ease. Any version of the first Brahma Brahmavihara that you feel comfortable with. Just wishing yourself well. May you be happy, may you be peaceful, may you live with ease. And really feel that for yourself, providing your inner child, as it were, with an unconditionally friendly regard, a caring demeanor. And then her second phrase, Compassion, Karuna. Holding your image in your mind, repeating, I care about your suffering. I care about your discomfort. I care about you. to the extent that I can, I will take care of you. I will take care of myself. And then The final Brahma Vahara phrase we'll use: "Udita, I delight and enjoy your achievements. I delight and enjoy you." I care about your happiness. I care about your happiness. And really seeing if we can convey internally this feeling of really appreciating and delighting in some aspect of our sense of self. even if it's difficult, perhaps visualizing some thing you've done for others or for yourself that you feel really good about and really see if you can appreciate this quality This desire to be of benefit, and then releasing your image, and I'm about to ring the bowl. So just when you hear the sound, just relaxing and slowly bringing your awareness back to the world around you as well as maintaining some internal awareness as well.